Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you for your interest in, your su- in the subject, and thank you for your presence. Uh, I will tell you, I'm going to struggle a little bit, because when I speak, I normally walk. And I've been told that I can't walk, because this is the mic that's picking me up. So I will struggle to stay still, but do the best that I can. Uh, thank you for your interest in this subject. The title for the presentation is, What Exactly Does God's Word, or What Exactly Does God Say in His Word About Homosexuality? Now, there have been some that have asked the question, so let me clarify from the outset. Tonight, I will not be addressing the legal aspects of that subject. We'll be talking about that at the beginning of tomorrow's presentation. Tonight is just what the Word of God says. What exactly does God say in His Word? And I would submit to you that a lot of people don't particularly care, don't seem to care, and this is not going to be about politics. Uh, This is not about the southern way of life. It's not about what it means to be a Tennessean or to be in Columbia. It's very simply, what does the Word of God say about homosexuality? And as we talk about this, understand that it's not just this particular subject that's important. In fact, I want to back up a little bit and remind us why it is so important to refer to and study and seek out the truth contained in God's Word. Why do we care what the Bible says? Why do we care what the Word of God says? After all, it's just a book written by some old men who are out of step with our culture, don't understand the demands of today, don't understand what's going on, the technology, the sophistication, the nuance that's developed over the years. Why do we care what these men have written down? Well, let me give you one word. Inspiration. We care about what is written down in the Bible because those things are inspired of God. And I don't know if you have Bibles with you or not, but if you do, you can turn along with me. But I want to reference 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible says the following, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we have the older preacher Paul writing to the younger preacher Timothy, and he's telling him some things about what he's been instructed in. You see, his mother and his grandmother had taught him the way of God through the Scriptures. And he comments about the significance of those Scriptures. He says that they are what? Inspired of God. What does that mean? They are God-breathed. It means that the words that were used in the Scriptures, the concepts that are taught, the principles that are there, exactly how the sentences are laid out, all of that came from God. And because of that, it's profitable for reproof and instruction and correction. Why? That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. And so these are not just the writings of Paul and what he thought about the matter. These are not the writings of James and Peter. They just woke up one day and said, you know, I think I'll opine on this and I'll tell the world how they ought to live. No, the Bible claims for itself that it is inspired. Look over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. More on this idea and concept of inspiration. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The Bible says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, listen to this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says these things that we're teaching, the things that we are affirming, the things that we're sharing, we didn't make these things up. These are not really clever tales, and we've just hoodwinked the whole world into thinking that Jesus is the Son of God, and the things He taught were truly of God. This is just a fairy tale. He says it's not that. To the contrary, He says the things that we're talking about, the things we're proclaiming, the things that we're preaching, the things we're teaching, these are things we saw and we heard. And Peter seems to make a reference here to the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountain and saw Him transfigured. He said, at that time we heard the endorsement of God Almighty from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so these are things that we know. We are eyewitnesses of the things that we speak of. But then he goes on to say, but it's no surprise, because the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, the things we proclaim, those things were prophesied about in the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, how did that happen? How could somebody look hundreds of years in the future and predict with precision and exactitude what was going to happen? He tells you because prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men spoke and holy men wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. That's how they were able to tell these things. That's how they knew these things. That's how the prophets were able to proclaim the Messiah with precision and exactitude. And so when we say inspiration, we're talking about this is of God. It makes it different. It's not like any other book. In fact, I love the concept that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 13, if you want to turn over there, if you have your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says this, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, listen to this point, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Notice the distinction he makes. It's not the word of men. He said, when you heard us proclaim the word of God, when you heard us share the word of God, when you heard us teach the word of God, you recognized it for what it really is. Just that. The inspired word of God. It is not something we made up. It's not, its origin doesn't lie up in man's imagination. This is from God. And because of that, it's worthy of respect. Because of that, it has to be treated differently. In fact, let's segue into this thought. If the Bible is indeed the Word of God, if it indeed is inspired, what are the implications of that for us? Let me share with you a few of those. If the Bible is indeed the Word of God, then it is objective truth. It's objective truth. You now, we live in a society that has no place for objective truth. There is no objective truth. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. Nothing is true. What's true for you is not true for me. What's true for me is not true for you. And so we can't settle anything. There's no ultimate standard. It's just whatever standard you want to live according to. But the Bible says otherwise because what? It is inspired. It is an objective truth. A truth that's true for all. 
Look at John chapter 17 and verse 17. Jesus, no less, said this. John, the 17th chapter and the 17th verse. Jesus, in praying to the Father for His apostles, says, Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. What is truth? As Pilate asked Jesus. God's Word is truth. The inspired Word of God is truth. The Scriptures are truth. And it is objective truth. And that makes it different from the writings of men that go all over the place and change and need to be updated and need to be tweaked. And we think we know what we want for ourselves and then a decade or two comes along and we realize that didn't quite work out and so we'll go a different way. In fact, that's why the writer says, look over in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. He says this about the way of man to be distinguished from the way of God. Proverbs 14:12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so we're told, yeah, men have all kinds of thoughts about how they should live, how society ought to be organized, how we should go about our daily responsibilities, how we should be organized as a family, how we should treat one another, all kinds of thoughts. He says, those thoughts, you know where they end? He says, the way of death. Or if I may direct your attention to the prophet Jeremiah, look at Jeremiah 10, 23. I love the way he says it. Jeremiah, the 10th chapter and the 23rd verse. Jeremiah says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And so Jeremiah says, you know, we're just not capable of mapping out for ourselves how we should live. We don't have what, is, what it takes to lay out the proper way of life. How should a man live? How should a woman live? How should we conduct ourselves? The Bible says, and Jeremiah says, we don't know. Left to our own devices, we have no idea. We need the guidance of God Almighty. We need that objective truth. We need that Word of God. We need the inspired message from the Creator of the universe. Yes, God's Word is objective truth. But let me give you a second thing. God's Word is timeless truth. God's Word is timeless truth. We have some that would suggest, well, yes, the, the Bible was good for its day and for its time and for its culture and in the particular geographic setting in which it is found, but it has absolutely no relevance today. We have evolved as a society. We are far more sophisticated and far more different, far more advanced, and we have no need for the training wheels of Scripture. That's the view of some, that society is just so different. But the Bible, as the inspired Word of God, is timeless truth. Look over First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll look at verses 22 through 25. Again, we're making the point that the Bible is timeless truth. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, listen to this, through the Word of God, which what? Which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures what? Forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Notice the power of the word. The word that it was transformational. The word that took men out of darkness and put them in the light. The word that saved men from their souls. He says that word is what? It's forever. It endures forever. It's timeless. And he contrasts that with man. 
and all of his glory and all of his achievements and all of his art and all of his architecture and all of his poetry and all of his music. Oh, all of that, he says, just as grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Doesn't last. Isn't preserved. But the Word of God, in contrast, it endures forever. And that's an important point. Because again, we're saying that this message is from the Creator of the universe. So the message is not just Paul bound in time and space by his culture. The message is not just what Peter knew from his experiences and his education. But it is a transcendent God who is communicating to us timeless truth. And so it must be dealt with that way. In fact, I like the way Jude says it. Look over in Jude 3. Jude 3. Jude says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for what? For the faith which was what? Once for all delivered to the saints. The faith delivered one time for everybody. You see, we don't need an updated revelation. We don't need a more culturally relevant Bible. The Bible has no need of evolving to catch up with man. Because it is from an inspired God. It's not from men. It didn't originate with men. It is God inspiring them. It is timeless. It's immemorial. And so what is, what's true when these things were written is true today. And for as long as the earth exists, they will be true. They're not going to change. And so as our society changes on things, and it does, and it has, and it will, that makes no difference to the Word of God. It does not change. And those who are faithful to the Word of God will not change on what it teaches. And it doesn't matter if we're in the minority or the majority. It doesn't matter if people love us or people hate us. It doesn't matter if people sing our praises or people condemn us. All of that is irrelevant. The question is, what does God's Word say? Because it is timeless and immemorial. But let me say this, a third thing for you. The Word of God, the inspired Word of God is universal truth. Universal truth. Because there are also some that would say, well, yeah, yeah, the Bible, it's true for those in the South, <laughs> down there. And it's true maybe for Americans, or maybe it's true for uh, Western European traditions, but no. The Bible is universal. It's for all people, all places, all languages, all kinds of food. It applies everywhere. It applies in Mozambique. It applies in Australia. It applies in China. Everywhere. Canada, Mexico. It's not limited. It's not culturally based. It transcends culture because, again, it's from a transcendent God. It's inspired. And it is uh, universal. Look over in Acts chapter 17. Paul makes this point. You remember, Paul was at Athens, the seat of learning in ancient Greece. And he had an opportunity to speak to the philosophers of the day. And so he wanted to educate them on the true God because these people were given over to pagans. They had idols everywhere. So much so that they had decided in case they missed a God, they had the altar to the unknown God. And that would catch whoever they had missed. But Paul takes that opportunity to teach about the true God and points out to them that God whom you don't know, whom you've got an altar to. Let me tell you about that God. In the midst of this presentation on Mars Hill, he says the following in Acts 17, 30-31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, notice the transition, but now, commands what? All men everywhere to repent. Now who does that leave out? All men everywhere. Does, does that leave out the people in the Northeast? Does, does it leave out people in California? Does it leave out people in Canada? 
Does it leave out folks in Crimea? Does it leave out folks in Ukraine? Who does it leave? All men everywhere. It's universal. And then he says, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, a reference to Jesus, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead tells everybody there will be a judgment day and it applies to everybody, all people, all nations, all lands, all languages, all cultures. The truth of God's Word is universal. But let me give you a fourth point. The God's Word, if it's inspired, we can't pick and choose what we're going to follow. We can't pick and choose what we're going to follow. There are a lot of people that are doing that. A lot of religious people, people who claim that this is the Word of God, to claim to believe that, to claim to follow Jesus... But they're, they're kind of like me when I, when I go through the cafeteria. I, I like cafeterias. Y'all like cafeterias? I, I like that. And I'll go through the cafeteria and uh, I'll say, you know, I, I'll take some of those collard greens. But no thanks on the turnips. I'm not into that. And I want some of that uh, Greek chicken there. That's good, but I, not the roast beef. Not today. And I, boy, that mac and cheese looks good, but I can't go with the mashed potatoes. So you just kind of pick and choose what you want. And that's the way people deal with the Scriptures. They say, well, you know, I love that stuff about grace. Boy, that's good stuff. I like it. But boy, that stuff about doing works and obedience. Whoa, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Leave that alone. Whoa, I love that talking about heaven and how wonderful that is. But please, let's don't talk about hell. I, I don't like that. Let's leave that alone. And so people want to pick and choose. I, I love the love of God, but, but, but I don't want to talk about the wrath of God. But we can't cherry pick from the Bible. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either it stands or it falls. Either it's all-inspired or it's not. I mean, if we're going to do this and just say, well, you know, I don't really like what the Bible says about homosexuality. Well, you know, if you get to pick and choose and throw out, then there's some things I don't like in here. Personally, I'm not too keen on this turn-the-other-cheek stuff. You know, if you hurt me, I would like, my temptation is to hurt you back and do it so well you don't do it again. But that's not wrong. And I can't write that out simply because I don't like it. I just have to conform to what God's Word says. I have to submit. And whatever ill feelings I have, I have to learn how to submit those in the love of Christ and demonstrate that love to other folks. We can't pick and choose, folks. It's inspired. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And I really worry about my religious friends who, who seem to be backing away with some of the teaching. Where does it stop? You know, you, you don't like what it says about fornication. You don't like what it says about homosexuality. Whatever. Well, what if somebody doesn't like what it says about the virgin birth? Or maybe somebody doesn't like what it says about the resurrection. Where does it stop? Where, oh, no, no, no. That, that's core. That, You've got to keep that. Who says? Who says? It's an all or nothing proposition. Either the Bible is the inspired word of God or it's not. And if it's not, let's quit pretending. Let's close the, the books, close the churches, and let's go on about our business do what we want to. But if it is the Word of God, then all of it must be studied. All of it must be adhered to. All of it must be obeyed. All of it must be shared. All of it must be defended. And so a few things about the implications of inspiration. But there may be some in the audience that have this question. Why would y'all talk about this subject? Haven't we heard enough about this? Why talk about this? This is divisive. It is emotional. Uh, you know you're going to generate enemies. Why talk about homosexuality? Why talk about what the Bible says about that? Well, let me suggest a couple of things to you. Acts chapter 20. Remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul was having a discussion with the elders of the Ephesian church. And during the midst of that discussion, he makes this very interesting point in Acts chapter 20, 
verses 26 and 27. Acts, the 20th chapter, verses 26 to 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. How could he say that? How could Paul, a preacher, say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? You're preaching, you're teaching, you're purporting to present to people the Word of God, and you're going to be held accountable for that. How can you say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? The next verse gives it to you. He says, for I have not shunned to declare to you most of the counsel of God. A portion of the counsel of God. Part of the counsel of God. The politically correct portion of the counsel. No, he says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has to say. Paul said, I've preached, I've taught, and because I've preached everything that God has to say, nobody on Judgment Day can point the finger at me and say, well, I'm lost because of Him. I lost my soul's salvation because He didn't preach. He didn't preach the truth on whatever subject it is. He said, no, 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 you don't have that. Because I have preached everything God has to say. And so that's what we have to do. We have to teach, we have to preach, we have to share the whole counsel of God. You mean the embarrassing parts? Yes, if that's the way you feel. You mean the stuff that's politically incorrect? Yes, if that's the way you feel. You mean the stuff that's going to get us labeled as fundamentalist and bigoted and backwards? Yes, if that's how you feel. The whole counsel of God. Everything God has to say. And, and we don't back away from anything. This is a subject we're talking about tonight, but you know, maybe you're fine with this subject, but there might be some other subjects you're backing away from. And that, that principle cuts across all of God's teaching. We need to teach and preach and proclaim and live and obey all of what God has to say. And so, yes, this is part of what God's inspired Word says. And so it is legitimate. It is a necessity. It is a part of us sharing the Gospel for us to teach what God's Word says on this subject. But also, I direct your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." What does the older preacher tell the younger preacher to do? Preach the Word. And that's what we're trying to do tonight. Preach the Word. And he says to preach it when it's in season and out of season. Whether it's popular or not. Whether it's accepted or not. Whether the majority likes it or not. And this will be true today. And if we continue to live and the Lord doesn't come back, it'll be true 10 years from now, 100 years from now, it's all going to be the same. And it doesn't matter what direction society goes. It doesn't, it doesn't what the majority passes in terms of their laws. It doesn't matter what the courts say. Preach the Word. And that's our obligation. And so for those who would say, this is not appropriate. You shouldn't teach this. You should. It's part of God's Word. We have no other choice but to preach and share. And we'll talk tomorrow about how we do that because there is a lot to be said about that, and there are people who have done harm to the cause of Christ with how they presented the Word, but that's not the subject under consideration for tonight. So with that by way of backdrop, let's look at what the Bible has to say. And I want to start in the Old Testament, and I, I could just hear the groans are, Old Testament? Oh, uh, you people don't believe in the Old Testament. You're always telling us it's the New Testament, the New Testament. Why would you go back to the Old Testament to talk about what God has to say 
about homosexuality. Well, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, we are told that there is value to studying the Old Testament, even though we understand that we are not under the Old Testament. We understand that we're under the New Testament. We understand that Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Covenant. We understand all of these things. But it doesn't mean you just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, because we're in the New Covenant, we'll just ignore the Old Testament. No. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before, were written for what? Our learning. That we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Why do we read these things? That we might learn from them. There are things to be learned from the Old Testament. There are things to be learned from the Old Covenant. There are things to be learned about what God said to His people in the Old Testament dispensation and the patriarchal dispensation. And so we're going to look at some of those things. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And you remember that on this account, we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting, in fact, even before then, if you want to turn back, the first mention of Sodom is found in Genesis chapter 13. And look at verses 13 and 14. You remember, this is when Abram and his nephew Lot kind of had a little bit of dissension between their various herds. They were very prosperous men. They'd done very well. But their herdsmen were fighting amongst themselves because there just wasn't enough land to accommodate both of them. So Abram says, well, let's just solve this. We're brethren. We should not fight. You go one way, and I'll go the other way. And old Lot, boy, he saw the plains of Jordan. He saw how well-watered they were, and he's thinking, boy, that's going to be great for my flock, great for my economic prosperity. That's where I'm going. But notice what the Bible says about his choice uh, of living. Genesis 13, 12, and 13. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And so this is going to be a problem. He's in great proximity, close proximity, to men that are described by the Bible as exceedingly wicked and sinful. And of course, you know as the story goes on in Genesis 18 that Abram has some visitors, three visitors, and they ended up uh, telling him, or I should say God, through one of the angels, ends up telling him what he's about to do. He's heard about a great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. He's come down to see, is it as great as uh, he has heard? And two of the men, two of the angels, go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to pick up the story because you know who's living there, Lot. And we began in Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who I have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my youth, uh, Ruth. And they said, stand back. And they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. And so you have uh, these men who come to Lot, come to Sodom. And they wanted to stay in the open square. And Lot insists, no, you're going to stay with me. 
And so they stay with him. And it says that at one point in the night, the men of the city, old and young, pressed around the house, and they said, we want to know you. Now, I've heard some try to explain this away and say, well, they, they just want to get to know them. See, where, where are you from? You know, where, what do you do for a living? And, you know, what tribe are you from? And that sort of thing. But I think it's pretty clear from the context what they meant by that. In fact, the New King James, as I'm reading from, says, know them carnally. But if that didn't convince you, uh, listen on to what he says. When Lot goes out, now, if all these guys are wanting to do is just get to know you, name, rank, and serial number, why does he say, verse 7, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. There's nothing wicked about asking where you're from. Obviously, he's talking about some sin. Obviously, he's talking about some immorality. But then you get more clues into what he does. Then he offers two daughters who have not known a man. Why? He said, let me bring them out to you so that you leave these men alone. Now, I'm not going to defend <laughs> Lot's actions here. I know the Bible says he's a righteous man. I have a couple of daughters. I'm not sure I would have made this move. But the point is this. What was the sin under consideration? What was the immorality under consideration? It was homosexuality. And what happened as a result of that? What happened as a result of this? Well, immediately, these men were struck with blindness by the angels so that they could not even find the door. They were so weary trying to find it that they gave up. But more importantly is, when we read down, and those of you that are familiar with this story know where I'm about to go, I want you to jump down in verse 24 of the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord, uh, from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like a smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, which he overthrew, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Complete and utter destruction because of their sexual immorality. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this particular account, what it means. There's been a lot of what I would call revisionist history. One of the arguments that I've heard is, well, Kevin, I got you. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50. I'm going to challenge you on this. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50. And we read, As I live, says the Lord God, Neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So there, Kevin, you say it's because of homosexuality. You say because of sexual immorality. But right here in your inspired book, it lists the sins of Sodom. Hmm, pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, haughty, committed abomination. Not a single word in there about homosexuality. Not a single word in there about sexual immorality. Well, hold on just a sec. Hold on just a sec. Now, I would make this point. Does it surprise me that a place that has a problem with homosexuality just might have Problems with other sins? Doesn't surprise me in the least bit. And I'm not so sure that we can absolutely conclude that homosexuality is not mentioned here because may I direct your attention to verse 50 again. It says they were haughty and committed what? Abomination. Abomination, something the Lord hates. 
And we're going to see in just a minute from Leviticus two times uh, homosexuality is described as an abomination. But if you say, I'm just not convinced of that, then we have some New Testament commentary on this story. And so the same Holy Spirit that inspired the record in Genesis is the same Holy Spirit that is inspired what is said in Jude verses 5 through 7. So let's look over there and see what the Holy Spirit says about this particular incident. Jude 5 through 7. Jude 5 through 7. Jude says this, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now listen to verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What did Jude say about the incident in Genesis chapter 19? Why did that happen? Having given themselves over to sexual immorality. And then goes on to qualify, gone after strange flesh. What does that mean? That's homosexuality. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to say in commenting upon that. And so this notion of saying that, well, no, it was about gang rape. No, it was about hospitality or the lack thereof. Just doesn't stand up under biblical scrutiny. We're trying to see what does the inspired word of God say. And so that is Genesis and that account. And there's a similar account in Judges 19. For sake of time, we won't go into it. But again, it, it shows the condemnation of homosexuality. But let's look at some more passages. Let's move forward from the patriarchal dispensation to the mosaical dispensation. Look over Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22. Leviticus chapter 18, and verse 22. The Bible says very simply, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's very simple. It's very straightforward. You may say, I don't like that. That's mean. That's unfair. That's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. You can put whatever pejorative label you want to on it. All I'm asking is, what does it say? It says, don't engage in homosexual conduct. And it says, why? Why? It's an abomination to God. Remember, that was the word we saw in Ezekiel 16.50. It's an abomination. Something God. That's a strong word. Something God hates. Something God detests. Now, again, this is God telling us what he thinks about this. If that's what he thinks, then we need to follow suit. Look at Leviticus 20.13. Leviticus 20.13. Very similar passage to what we just read. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. There's that word again. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And so the Bible makes it very clear again. Homosexual uh, conduct is being referenced here. And what does he call? He said, don't do that. It's prescribed. Don't do it. It's wrong. He says it's an abomination. And under the uh, Jewish law, under the Mosaic law, it was a crime worthy of death. Now, of course, you know, when people talk about this, the first thing is, say, oh, you're saying we need to execute. No, I'm not saying that. We're under the New Testament dispensation. But the point I'm trying to make home here is it's very clear how God felt about it. And God made it abundantly clear. It was easy to understand. It was straightforward. It's not difficult. It's a sin, it's prohibited, it's wrong. Well, let's fast forward and go to the New Testament because that's, we're under the New Testament dispensation. And let me address this because I've heard this quite often. Well, you folks believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? We do. You believe He's divine, right? Yes, we do. believe He rose from the dead, right? 
believe he's the great teacher. Yes, yeah, the great physician. Yeah, we, we believe that. And as I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the red letter stuff, I didn't see one reference to homosexuality in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus did not teach on homosexuality. You guys are trying to make that his teaching. It wasn't him. That was Paul who was a homophobe. Jesus had nothing to say about that whatsoever. You may have heard that argument. Well, here's what I'd like to do about that. Look over in John chapter 16. By the way, I will, I will freely admit that in what is recorded for us in the four Gospels and red letters, there's no discussion explicitly as such of homosexuality. But, before you jump to any conclusions, there's some more information in the four Gospels, in red letters, that you need to read. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Just Jesus talking. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine, therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. Now what did Jesus say about His earthly ministry, about the things that He taught? What did He just say about that? He put limits on it. He said, I'm not telling you everything. He said, you can't bear it now. I'm not telling you everything. So this is what Jesus said in red letters, in the Gospel, I'm not telling you everything now that I'm with you in this earthly ministry. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, if Jesus said, I'm not telling you everything, then you can't very well make an argument and say, well, Jesus didn't talk about it when He said, I'm not talking about everything. An example to illustrate the point. If we had a politician who said, he's going to have a press conference, said, look, I'm going to talk about tax reform. And I'm not going to talk about anything else. I'm just going to talk about tax reform. Now, I've got a platform that addresses other things. I've got other opinions. I've got other things that, that I want to accomplish. But in this conference, I'm going to talk about tax reform. And so he gives a 30-minute speech on tax reform. And the next day, the local paper writes it up and said, no, Senator so-and-so talked about tax reform, but he must not care one whit about what's going on in the border. He didn't care about immigration one little bit. He never said a word about that. He didn't say anything about what's going on uh, with the Malaysian airliner that was downed uh, over there in Ukraine. He didn't say a word about it. He must not care one bit of that. Now, would that be fair? Would that be fair journalism? When the man said, look, I'm just going to talk about tax reform. I'm not going to talk about anything else. I've got other things to say, but I'm only going to talk about tax reform. And Jesus said in John 16, there are some other things that I cannot tell you now because you can't bear them. And you know how those things are going to come to you? He said the Holy Spirit is going to bring those to you. And the Holy Spirit is going to take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so when Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, where did that teaching come from? It came from Jesus. The Holy Spirit took it from Jesus and gave it to Paul. Paul wrote it down and we can learn and understand what the teaching of Jesus is on that subject or any other. And so it's an unfair argument to say that because Jesus did not specifically address the issue, then Jesus has nothing to say. It's not a part of his gospel. It's not a part of his teaching when he said himself that there's a lot of things I'm not saying now, but the Holy Spirit will bring those things to you later. With that being said, let's move forward very quickly to some of those things that are said. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. 
verses 24 through 27. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. You may remember this particular passage. It talks about those who know that there's a God, but they refuse to acknowledge it. They suppress the truth. Now notice the, the word suppress means you can't suppress something you don't know. And why do they know? Because, as it says, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. You can look around in the universe. You can look around in the planet. You can look at what Psalm 139 talks about, fearfully and wonderfully made. You can look at our bodies. All of that testifies to what? A Creator. And so the people who deny that there's a Creator, he says those people are accountable. They've been shown. They know or should know. But they refuse to give God the glory and the honor. They refuse to thank Him. And then he says about those people, jump down to verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now listen to verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now this is a description of homosexuality and notice how it's described. Shameful, vile passions against nature, error. Now you can disagree or not. I'm not talking about whether you agree or disagree. The question is what does the Word of God say? If you read that passage in all fairness, would you come away with, well, God doesn't care, or it's okay, or that's just the way you are. You can't do anything about it. Would you come away with that? Again, you might disagree. You may say, oh, I don't agree with the Bible. I think that viewpoint's terrible. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, what does the Bible say? And it's very clear that the Bible's condemning homosexuality, whether we like it or whether we don't. Turn over, well, before we go too much further, I want to point out verse 32. It's a very important point. The passage is not limited to homosexuality. It talks about all sorts of ungodliness and sin, sinful things. And then verse 32, he caps it off by saying, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I want to underscore that last phrase. It's interesting, the Bible is telling us that it's not just wrong to do these things. It's wrong to approve of those who engage in them. So, just because I don't do it, I can't say, well, you know, it's not right for me, it's not what I want to do, but I don't care if you do it, it's fine, no big deal, it's just your choice. He says, it is equally wrong to approve of those things as it is to do them. And so we can't approve them. If we are God's people, if we're following God's Word. And so that's part of the debate, I think, over homosexual marriage. Uh, it's been for a long time that people can engage in homosexual conduct but now society is being asked to bless it, to legitimize it, to put its stamp of endorsement. And I suspect, we'll talk more about it uh, tomorrow, that that will happen. It's happened in several states. I think it's a matter of time before the, the Supreme Court declares that it is unconstitutional to define marriage between a man and a woman. But the point I'm making is that people who are following this book, people who are adhering to God's Word, can never endorse it, can never approve of it, Maybe you have the right to do it under man's laws, but don't come to me and say, it's okay. Kevin, isn't it okay? Because I'm going to have to give you the biblical line. Because we cannot approve of those things that are contrary to God's law. But turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Or 9 through 11, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. After Paul has talked about brethren suing brethren, which certainly uh, is ungodly and wrong, he moves on to this point in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And so very simply, you get a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not my opinion. That's not what I wrote. That's not what Tennesseans believe. That's not what Southerners believe. That's what the Bible says. God, who's the author of salvation, God, who's the only one who can redeem us from our sins, God, who created us, said that if you're practicing these things, and we're talking about homosexuality, but we could talk about any of these things. If you're practicing these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Word says. Now, if we're following the Word, that's our position. It's God's position. Not because we're trying to be mean, not because we're trying to be hateful, not because we're trying to be hate mongers, not because we're trying to, to oppress people. It's because what? God's Word says. But notice verse 11, which is very interesting. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he just say that there were people in the church at Corinth who were these things he just listed including homosexuals. Were? Wait a minute, I, I thought you're born that way. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just absolutely your program. That's the way you... And such were, past tense, some of you. But through the power of the blood of Jesus, through the power of the Gospel, through the power of the forgiveness that is in the obedience to the Gospel, these people had come out of that lifestyle. And so it is today. The very power of the Gospel. Oh, we're not talking about some kind of social science. We're not talking about some kind of medical therapy. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about the power of God's Word. And it has done just what it did in Corinth in a lot of places. And there are people who could stand up and testify. We could bring them to talk about their change. And so for those who say that it's impossible, you can't do it, you're just born that way, which, by the way, that has not been proven has not been proven at all. In fact, there's scientific evidence to the contrary. But the Bible says, and that's what we're worried about here, I'm not a medical doctor, not here to talk about medical science, but the Bible says such were some of you, but you can change because of the power of the gospel. And then I want to direct your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll look at verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. The Bible says this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. If there's any other thing that is what? Contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So one thing we know about this list of things it is all what? Contrary to sound doctrine. We don't want to practice that. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to prove that. We don't want to teach that. Now, amongst those things that are characterized as what? Contrary to sound doctrine is listed what? Sodomites. Wait a minute. Where did we hear that word before? It sounds familiar. 
Reminds me of Genesis 19, Sodom, which is described in Jude 5 through 7 as a city that was given over to sexual immorality, having gone after strange flesh, and suffered the eternal fire as vengeance, as punishment, because of that. And so what are we talking about here? Homosexuality is what? Contrary to sound doctrine. It is unsound. Again, not asking what your political preferences are, not asking what you think about it. I'm asking, what does the Bible say? And the Bible says very clearly, it's contrary to sound doctrine. So what does God's Word have to say about homosexuality? It's a sin. It's wrong. And just like any sin, sins have to be washed away. And there's only one place to do that. That's in the body of Christ. You have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me say this. Let me, I, I sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I don't stand before you, oh, I've never done anything wrong. How dare these people do this? Sin is sin, folks, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow. But I'm not interested in singling out this sin and making it any different or any special than any other sin. Any transgression of God's law will damn our souls unless we have the cleansing blood of Jesus. And so I've been in the boat of being a sinner, and I was lost until I obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate message here. The message that we want to get out to people is whatever sin you're caught up in, whatever transgression of God's law, whatever unsound doctrine you're practicing or teaching or caught up in, you can come out of that. But there's only one way to do it. It's not the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. It's not gritting your teeth. It's not just being mentally strong. It's the power that's found in the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. If you want to be a fit vessel for the kingdom, is you have to obey the gospel. And so here are some things for you to think about. Uh, tomorrow we will talk more about the reaction uh, of Christians to what has been happening, talk about some of the legal and legislative developments, and just to give you a sense of where I think we are going, I think the trend is pretty clear, it's just probably a matter of time. But knowing that that trend is fairly clear and knowing that things are, are going to change, how do people who do believe that this is an inspired word of God respond to that? How do we respond to those laws? How do we respond to the workplace? How do we respond to the school uh, yards? How do we respond to what is taught? And there is a Christian way to respond to those things. Thank you for your time and for your attention tonight. All right, let's start with uh, the questions. I'll read the question and then uh, attempt to answer it. Uh, first question, how can heterosexuals speak out about a subject they know nothing about, that subject being homosexuality? Well, I would say that if you, by that you mean that you don't know anybody who is engaged uh, in that conduct or is involved in that lifestyle, uh, you can always speak out about what the Bible says. Uh, whether you know somebody or not, whether you're intimately familiar with the challenges or not, you know or you should know the Scriptures. You can go through all the things that we went through tonight and talk about what God's Word says. But let me also say this. Um, I, I question if you have no interaction with people are involved in the homosexual lifestyle, I'm not quite sure where you live. I mean, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, and I know some folks who are involved in, in that lifestyle. I mean, there are folks everywhere. Uh, some folks have come out. Some folks are not so uh, vocal. But uh, we're going to come into contact, if you haven't already, more and more people. I have friends that would be considered homosexual, uh, just like I have friends that would be considered fornicators, and I have friends that use profane speech. I don't engage in what they engage in. I don't improve of what they engage in, but we've got to have dialogue. That's one of my uh, pet peeves is that we've, we've got to talk to people. And I've had conversations uh, with homosexuals and we've had civil discussions. I vehemently disagree with their viewpoint and their lifestyle, 
but uh, we were able to sit down and have a civil discussion. And here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I believe. Um, I had a discussion with uh, a state senator down in Alabama who's an open lesbian, and we had some conversation. And, and my point was, look, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. If you can show from the scriptures where I'm wrong, I, I'm certainly open to that. I never got a response to that invitation. But the point I'm making is we need to engage with people. We need to have conversations. Uh, Jesus was with the tax collectors and the sinners. Why? Because it is the lost who need a physician. It's the lost who need the gospel. And we're not going to create utopian societies and keep the gospel to ourselves. We're taking the gospel out to the world. And so we're going to have more and more interaction as people become uh, more and more open about that. And I don't think we should shy away from it. Uh, I'm not saying that I embrace the way society is going. I, I have some trepidation, concern, anxiety, more so for my children than anything in terms of it's going to be a different world for people to have the convictions that I have. It's going to be more difficult. Uh, but I don't shy away from having conversations about what I believe, just like I don't shy away from having conversations with Muslims or, or Buddhists or Hindus. This is what I believe. And Christianity is a teaching religion. And so we ought to be comfortable enough to sit down with people and in love and in humility to share what the Scriptures say. And uh, there are people that you can befriend that will tell you more about their struggles. Uh, I remember in, in college having some folks that uh, came forward with some things. I had a young man uh, not terribly long ago, I was preaching in the congregation somewhere, and uh, he was very honest. Uh, he said, I struggle with these things. But he didn't once refute the teaching of the Bible. He didn't once say that was wrong. He didn't once say it was unfair. He didn't once say he couldn't control himself. He was just being very honest. Look, I'm attracted to men, and I struggle with this thing. And so we had a very good conversation about that. And sometimes, and again, I'll talk about this more tomorrow, sometimes we recoil in horror and do so much harm to the cause of Christ because we don't address the subject in love. Hey, I may not be guilty of that sin. That may not be a problem for me, but I've got other issues and all of transgressions of God's law are sin. And all of that sin is capable of sending your soul to hell. So I don't sin, yeah, wow, my sin is better than your sin. No, sin is sin, it's transgression of God's law. All right, second question. Isn't this talk about homosexuality just beating a dead horse? Uh, no, I think not. I actually think that we haven't talked enough about it. In fact, I think in part the reason why society has changed so quickly is that there has been for a long time a silent majority on this issue. Uh, but we have not articulated our views. We have not written to the letters of the editor or to the editor. We've not been on talk shows. We've not written books. We just haven't been as vocal as we need to be. Uh, so, no, I don't think it's beating a dead horse at all. I think we need to talk about it. But we need to talk about it from a biblical perspective. It's a principled discussion. It's, we don't need the late Fred Phelps, and we don't need the Westboro Baptist Church. That is not the way to do it. And any of that hate, there truly is hate speech out there. And that is not appropriate. And I don't think it's appropriate. Sometimes I hear from the pulpit people making jokes, preachers making jokes about homosexuality. I don't think that's appropriate. It's not funny in the least bit. It's sin. And for those people caught up in it, it's a difficult thing. So I do think we have to uh, talk about it more, but we talk about it with humility. We talk about it from a biblical perspective. We talk about it from a principled perspective. Uh, here's a third question. Wouldn't your time be better spent being of service to the poor and needy rather than spending this much time worried about what other people do in their bedrooms. And let me say from the outset, we absolutely need to be involved in helping the poor and the needy. Uh, Galatians 6.10 says, Do good unto all, especially into the household of faith. Uh, we have to be active 
in trying to help the helpless and give people a voice who don't have a voice. So I don't disagree with the idea that we need to be active, and that's a critical component. We need to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. That we need to follow the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12, as you'd have been doing to you, doing to others. And so it's absolutely, I mean, I preach on that and teach on that. But it's not mutually exclusive. It's not, okay, I've got to do all this. I don't have time to defend what God says on homosexuality. I don't have God, uh, time to defend what God says on the family. I don't have time to defend what God says about fornication or adultery. It's not mutually exclusive. Remember what Paul said. I have not declared, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. So yes, we need to talk about our obligations to the poor. And yes, we need to be involved in helping the poor. But that doesn't exclude me or prevent me from also teaching the truth on this subject or any other Bible subject. They're not mutually exclusive. That would be my answer to that. Uh, let me go to a second card here. Uh, <laughs> when did you choose to be black? Well, I didn't. Uh, I was born that way. Uh, then the next question, when did you choose to be male? I didn't. I was born that way. Uh, when did you choose to be straight? Uh, if you mean by that, heterosexual, uh, born that way. Uh, I would bet your answer for each question is that you did not choose, rather God created you that way. So why do you insist that God did not create uh, homosexuals to be that way? Well, first and foremost, because of what the Bible teaches. Again, I start with the premise that the Bible is the inspired word of God, meaning that that's coming from the creator of the universe, the architect of all that is. He knows us better than we know ourselves. If he says that a certain kind of conduct is not to be engaged in, then that has to be my viewpoint on it. And everything has to center around that. And as I said before, it has not been proven. It is assumed. Uh, it's assumed in a lot of society. It's assumed in, in the media sometimes. It's assumed in a lot of these discussions that this is irrevocable. This is something you're born with. There's nothing you can do about it. That has not been proven. Now, having said that, I remember when I was at the uh, University of Tennessee, uh, there was a guy who said, uh, who was homosexual, do you think I just woke up one day and decided to be this way? Not necessarily so. I think there are all kinds of things that can influence people and cause them to have these issues. Again, I'm not a social scientist. But I think there's been a lot written about influences early on that can have long-lasting effects on people. But I still have to come down to the Scriptures. And if the Scriptures say that this is wrong, and they clearly do, if the Scriptures say that you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven if you do this, and it clearly does, if the Scripture says this is contrary to nature, and it clearly does, then that's my position on it. And, uh, and let me say this. I've even said I, I don't know what the science is going to show. But even it wouldn't bother me if it showed that certain people had a proclivity towards this particular problem. I've got certain proclivities towards certain problems because I talk a lot, and I've always talked a lot. And the Bible says something about that. I have to control my speech. I can't gossip. I can't lie. So even if I had some predisposition towards certain things, I can follow the Word of God. Now, I don't concede that point because it has not been proven. But the ultimate point I'm saying is if God's Word says it's wrong, and God is the creator of the universe, and God made us, made our minds, made them male and female, as Jesus said in quoting Genesis in Matthew 19. If that's what God's word is, and that's his position, that has to be my position. Uh, and so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and let me say this too. Uh, I do not think it is fair to liken homosexuality uh, to being uh, black or being an African American. And, and I will tell you, it's interesting. I told you about the state senator in Alabama who's a lesbian. Uh, she herself, in discussion with me, says she no longer does that because she found that uh, she's a Democrat and many of her Democrat colleagues who are African-American took her to task for that, saying that they're not the same whatsoever. And so she does not make that argument. Now, she still lives that lifestyle and she still defends it, but she does not liken it to be an African-American. I think historically I can make a pretty convincing case that they're apples and oranges, but that's all I'll say on that subject. Next card. 
nobody uh, was not born gay. That's a choice. What people do, they need to repent before it's too late because when the day you die, the only place you will go is heaven or hell. It's no in-between, and that's the bottom line because God says so. Uh, and I would agree that anybody who is outside of the body of Christ, anybody who has not had the cleansing blood of Jesus, is going to be bound for hell. It's not unique to that sin. It's any sin. Uh, but it is a choice. I agree with that, whether or not you engage in that lifestyle, just like it's a choice whether or not I fornicate. It's a choice whether or not I commit adultery. It's a choice whether or not I lie. It's a choice whether or not I gossip. It's a choice whether or not I rob. It's a choice whether or not I steal. It's a choice whether or not I stab people in the back. It's a choice whether or not I murder. It's a choice where I engage in violence because all of those things are choices. And if those choices are contrary to God's law, that's right. Uh, notice Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Transgression of God's law. What is that death? Eternal death. So any sin, the first time that I sin, you know what I deserve? Hell. And that's a wake-up call because we look at ourselves and say, well, we're pretty good folks and I'm pretty good and it's like a lady told me one time, I kind of think of heaven as, you know, God's going to get up there and have a scale and he's going to have all my good deeds on one side and all my bad deeds on another side and as long as my good deeds kind of outweigh the bad deeds, then I'm going to be fine. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that we've all sinned and because of that sin, we're deserving of hell. And the only antidote to that, the only escape, the only way we get it is through Jesus Christ and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I agree that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And I agree that those outside the body of Christ are bound for hell. And I don't say that with any glee. And I don't say that with any joy. It's just what the truth teaches. I, I don't know. I mean, if you read the book and it says that, I mean, Jesus himself, I remember one time we were at um, school and we were having a discussion, a bunch of us, about religious things. And I guess we disagreed on some things. And one of the janitors uh, came up and uh, just was going to set us straight. He said, I don't know why you guys are arguing about these things and talking about these things. Because don't you know that everybody or most people are going to heaven? And I couldn't help but think about Matthew 7, 13 through 14, which I'm going to read really quick for you. And uh, for those that you know, want to reinvent Jesus in a way that he never talked about hell, the, the interesting thing, the ironical thing, uh, is that Jesus spoke about hell as recorded in the Scriptures more than anyone else. And here's what he says on this occasion. Matthew 7, 13-14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Translation, what is he saying? Most people are going to hell. Very few, relatively speaking, are going to heaven. Now that's what Jesus said. That's what our Lord and Savior said. That's the one who gave his life for us. That's what he said. That's a sad reality. And I don't take any comfort in that, any glee in that at all. But that's the truth. And so there are, and, and what's our job? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And I'm in the Son of Man's church. I was bought by his blood. And so his mandate is my mandate. What he died for, I live for. And what is that? To seek and to save that which is lost. How do I do that? By spreading the gospel as much as I can to every soul that I can in the hopes that people will obey and also have the blood of Jesus cleanse them from their sins and be added to the body of Christ. All right, let's see what else we've got here. Uh, is it any indication of the power of their lust that the men kept trying to get in the door even after being struck blind? Uh, fair point. Uh, obviously, they didn't give up. They still wanted to get in there. There's a lot of things going there. Lust was going on. There was also anger. Remember, there was anger expressed at Lot. I hear this man comes in among us judging us. Uh, so, fair point. Let's see. That was it on that one. Uh, Okay, I'm not really sure about this one. What can you tell us about the homosexual gene? I'm not aware of any such homosexual gene. Uh, if somebody, whoever wrote the question, come up to me afterwards and 
let me know what you know about that. But uh, my understanding is uh, there has been no biological basis for homosexuality that has been proven. There have been studies, in fact, there have been studies, interesting enough, if I recall correctly, in Sweden, by folks who will freely tell you, look, we support homosexuality, but the evidence doesn't support the fact that it's mandated by biology. And so that's what I'll say on that. Um, I thought, God is love. How can he hate anyone? Well, that, that shows that a lot of people don't understand the dual nature of God. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Uh, there is the love of God, and it knows no bounds in the sense that what did he do ultimately to save men? He gave his very own son. But that does not take away the fact that God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is just. In fact, that's why Christ had to die on the cross. God couldn't just wave his hand and say, okay, everybody's forgiven, everything's fine. No, because of his holiness, there had to be a price paid, and the price was Jesus. And so, does God hate? Yeah, he hates some things. He hates sin. These six things, A7, the Lord hates in Proverbs 6, 16 through 20. He hates things that are contrary to his will. But he loves everybody. In fact, he wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, as 1 Timothy 2, 4 says. And not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so, God wants every single one of us to come to him. He loves us, but there are conditions for us to come to him. And he will not compromise those conditions. God cannot fellowship iniquity. God cannot fellowship wickedness. God cannot fellowship immorality. And so that's the God of the Bible. I think a lot of people misunderstand this. Most of the discussions when I see about homosexuality, they're very, for those who are supporting that lifestyle, very rarely will they go to the text as we did tonight. What they'll do is talk about this sort of thing. God is love. God is love. Yes, God is love. But if the God of the universe has revealed himself, in the Bible, isn't it fair, if we want to be informed in making decisions about what God is and what God will do and will not do, isn't it fair to study everything God has to say? And if everything God has to say includes both the goodness and the severity of God, if everything God has to say has both the love and the terror of God, you know, Paul said because of the terror of the Lord, he persuaded men. So yes, God loves us. God is love. But God will not tolerate sin. But the nice thing is, he's given us an avenue whereby we can get out of that sin. We don't need to stay mired in that darkness. We can come into the light. So yes, I agree God is love, but there's nothing inconsistent with God being love when it comes to the existence of hell. And there's nothing inconsistent with God being love that God hates. He hates any transgression of his law. Let's see what else we have. Okay, if we cannot pick and choose uh, something of the Bible, then why do we adhere to uh, 1 Timothy 2.12? And this says nothing of the Mosaic laws that are also ignored and should not be... And it just kind of stops there. But 1 Timothy 2.12, I'll turn over there. I think I know where this question is going, and my answer might be surprising to you. First uh, Timothy 2.12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence. Let me just try to figure out where this question is going, I think. I think the question is saying, all right, you said that all the Word of God is inspired, right? You said all of it needs to be obeyed, right? All of it needs to be taught. All of it needs to be shared. And you're harping tonight on homosexuality. But what about a verse like this that says women can't teach or have authority over a man? What about women preachers? What do you think about that? I think it's a violation of First Timothy 2.12 which is what the Word of God said. And I may, that may be politically incorrect. That may shock you. It may surprise you. 
But I have to stand or fall. I have to be consistent. I think the Bible means exactly what it says. And that's what I preach and that's what I say. So there's no gotcha on that. And if you find, if you find an aspect of the Scriptures that I'm not teaching, I'm not practicing, bring it to my attention and I'll start practicing it. It's not going to go the other way of, oh, well, you're not following this, so you need to give up on homosexuality. No, it's just, okay, you pointed out an area where I'm not conforming my life to the Scriptures. Guess what? I'm going to start conforming. And so if that was the nature of the question, then uh, that's what I'd say. And as to the Mosaic Law, I think we talked about this earlier, the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled. It had a purpose. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Christ fulfilled that. So now we're under the New Testament. We're under His dispensation. So we're not uh, 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 under the jurisdiction of the Old Testament. We're under the jurisdiction, if I may use a legal term, of the New Testament. But as I said earlier, Romans 15:4 in the New Testament says there are things we can learn from that. So no, we're not going line by line, verse by verse in the Old Testament, and we're stoning kids who talk back to their parents. No. <laughs> we're under the New Testament dispensation. Why? Because that's what the inspired Word of God teaches. And even the Old Testament itself speaks to a time, in Jeremiah, there's going to be a new covenant. So there's no inconsistency. If you know the Bible as a whole, it's saying, here's a covenant that was in place, there's going to come a time when there's a new covenant. When you're under the new covenant, the old covenant, you're not amenable to anymore. And so we learn from it, we can study it, it's valuable, but it's not, we're now under Christ. God spoke in many different ways. In fact, let's read that. I don't want to just quote it. Let's read over in Hebrews, just the emphasis of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by whom? His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had Himself, or by Himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The whole book of Hebrews is designed to encourage the Jewish Christians, come to Christ. Why? Christ is better. He's a better priest. He's a better king. He's a better mediator. This is a better covenant. And that's the covenant under which we are. And so it's not that we're throwing away the Old Testament. It's not that we're disregarding it, but we're just not under it because the Old Testament by its very nature and design was designed to bring us to Christ. And once we've been brought to Christ, we no longer need to be under that jurisdiction. We're under the jurisdiction of God's Son. And so that's the answer to that. I don't think there's any inconsistency in that whatsoever. Again, I think that shows, uh, with no disrespect, just an ignorance of the Scriptures. A lot of people don't know the difference between the Old and New Testament and the relationship between the two. Uh, I believe that's all that I have. So with no further questions, do you have any announcements? Let me say I appreciate the questions. I appreciate what you ask. I appreciate your time. Uh, and you can ask any question you want to. I'll make my best shot at it, and I hope I was fair with the questions. If I wasn't, pull me aside. I'd be happy to talk with you, and you can reprimand me for not being fair with the questions. Thank you.